You don't have to be rolled into an operating room to get a scientific clean. You can just get your morning coffee or bottomless breadsticks or celebrate 10 years together because the scientific expertise that helps operating rooms stay clean helps restaurants too. Look for the Ecolab Science Certified Seal where you dine. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patented half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. Welcome to Go Ask Alley, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. Hi, I'm Allie Wentworth, and you're listening to Go Ask Alley, where this season I'm asking the question, how do you grow a teenager in a pandemic? Well, everyone, this is it. We've officially come to the end of our first season of the podcast, Go Ask Alley. And it has been an incredibly enriching, insightful podcast. I mean, my guests have been incredible from Jeanette Friedman, who helped deal with teenagers and addiction, Harold Kopowitz and anxiety in our teens, which during a pandemic has been off the charts. Uh, Jessica Leahy, Stephen Russell, who talked about growing a trans or gay teenager in a pandemic. Logan Powell, looking at the landscape of applying to college in a pandemic. My friend Brooke Shields, who came on to talk about the sexualization of girls in social media, and so many other amazing guests. I thank you all so much. And now, on to our final topic for the season. I want to discuss positive sexuality for girls and boys today because we're trying to grow teenagers in a pandemic. Today, I'm very excited because I have read her books and she has been an integral part of my parenting technique. Peggy Ornstein is here. She is the New York Times bestselling author of seven books, including Boys and Sex, Girls and Sex, Flux and Schoolgirls. She is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine. Peggy has also been published in New York, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, and other publications. Her TED Talk has received over 5 million views. She lives in Northern California with her husband and daughter. Woo! It's a lot of accomplishments, Peggy. You're an accomplished uh, lady. <laughs> take it know, in. During, it's weird because during COVID, like all that just sort of dissipates, right? You're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, we're just... I don't know. I'm just sitting in my house. I know. I know. <laughs> I, know. I know. And the world just seems to be going by. Yeah. Um, I have two teenage daughters, so there's a lot to discuss. But also, I grew up um, never talking about sex in my family. Never talking about sex. In fact, when I say the word masturbation... I still get a little pinch in my stomach, like that something <laughs> bad's going to happen to me. So um, I have a lot of questions for myself so I can redo my own childhood sexually, but also uh, for all the girls and boys out there. And I want to start almost chronologically, which is the early body messaging, particularly with girls. So as babies, 
we name boys genitalia, but not girls. Now, why is that? Yeah, that's in research. That's what they find with um, parents that we tend to, you know, at least you'll say, here's your pee pee. You'll say like something. Um, We do such a number on girls and we perform a kind of, you know, in America, psychological clitoridectomy on our girls. We just are silent about um, sex and pleasure for them. So that starts early on when we don't name their body parts. And then they go into, you know, around fifth grade or something, they have puberty education, right? And they learn that um, boys have erections and ejaculations, and girls have periods and unwanted pregnancy, which right. is not the same. Um, and they, they see that, you know, that diagram that looks kind of like a Georgia O'Keeffe painting or something like a steer's head, right? Mm-hmm. Of the internal women's reproductive system. And then it grays out between the legs. So we never say vulva. We never say clitoris, you know, no surprise. Oh God, never, never. I'm going to say the M word now, Allie. Fewer okay. than half of girls 14 to 17 have masturbated even once. And then they go into a partnered experience. And somehow we believe that they will magically think that sex is about them, that they will magically know how to express their wants, their needs, their desires, their limits. We really set girls up at best for a reduced experience in pleasure and at worst for accepting unwanted behavior or being subject to assault or harassment. So, wow. Okay. So let me, let let me ask you this. So do you think that parents shouldn't have, let's say they don't say vagina to a toddler, but they call it something else. I mean, we had a babysitter and she called my daughter's vaginas peck peck. So it was always like peck peck. Did you wash your peck peck? Um, And so do you think that parents should initially always call penis and vagina um, even at a young age? Or are you allowed to have a nickname, but then you need to kind of you know, get rid of it and start calling it by its clinical label? You know, all the research and best practices are that we should use the names. Like you would not use some weird old name for somebody's elbow or, or their knee or something. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it seems specific to this body part. And also, Ali, um, I'd say vulva. You'd say vulva. Kind of like if you only named boys testicles and didn't name their penis. It's a weird thing to do. So... Um, I think it's hard for us to say the word, you know, as hard as it is to say vagina, it it feels it's like in the masturbation camp to say vulva, but um, we really should try like naming these things. And I mean, I do remember having a toddler who would walk around town yelling vagina, vagina, vagina. (laughs) And I had to do a certain amount of like, you know, okay. (laughs) That's her name. Right. That's her name. (laughs) Um, But you know, it's, it's, it's better. And similarly, when we talk about, I mean, I think about things like uh, masturbation, right? Yeah. Like, since you brought it up. Yeah. Well, that, if now you remember, we're going to make this whole episode about masturbation. I why not? Tell. Right. Good for the girls. Good for the boys. Good for everybody <laughs> in between and beyond. When I was in a, sat in on a puberty education class uh, at one point, the uh, teacher had the diagram of the external genitalia of the vulva. And what she said was, this is the clitoris. It's for making good feelings. Wow. That was enough. Like you don't have to go into, you know, super big detail to a Mm -hmm. 10-year-old. Why do we think of female pleasure as so taboo and like something that we shouldn't tell girls about, that they shouldn't know about, that boys shouldn't know about or should only learn? I mean, they what so what do they learn? They learn porn, but um that's where they that's where they're learning what female pleasure is. And, you know, that's not optimal. Um doesn't it start with Barbie? 
<laughs> I mean, Barbie is, you know, it was the first thing I played with and she had, she was spackled shut. Yeah, she she no, had no right. genitalia. And she by no the way, genitalia. looks like a porn star. Yeah. Well, like, she's based on a sex doll, actually. The um, woman who uh, created Barbie based her on a German sex doll. I know weird things. I know no, the I, I things. No, I love that. I, mean, I think the sex doll's name was Lily. I even know that. Oh, yeah. they ch- well, they changed the name for patent and reasons. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because I, I didn't want to give my girls Barbies for that reason. And also, a few years ago, I had written a paper on anal bleaching. And a lot mm. of the anal bleaching stemmed from, obviously, pornography. Mm-hmm. And that stemmed from Barbie. Like, don't. We don't want to see anything. We don't want to see hair. Everything right. has to be pink and plastic. And and I know that at one point you had talked about, you know, the image of Barbie and the image of girls not having any genitalia is what leads to labioplasty. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, to be fair, Barbie now is not very popular, but um, but that kind of doll, yeah. Labioplasty has been the fastest growing form of plastic surgery. Um among women, and particularly actually among young women. Um, and that is when they uh, cut off the folds of the labia to mm-hmm. make them less prominent. And there's nothing about it that is, in fact, it may impede pleasure. It may um, numb um, the area permanently. And how do they know to do this surgery? What is it? What kind of messaging are they getting that they think? Pornography. Uh-huh. That, that's what they see in pornography. And mm-hmm. And then on top of that, the style that is asked for the most is called the Barbie. And yeah, I mean, what does that mean? Somebody, you know, it means it's fused. And, and the same on a, on a much you know, lower scale, um, the, the kind of um, trend to remove all pubic hair, which to older, you know, women of a certain age feels kind of often like um, you're trying to make them look like a child. Um, oh, which is so icky to me. Yeah, but to young women and girls, you know, the, the removal of the pubic hair or the, the labiaplasty is all about um, opening the most intimate part of your body to the idea of public scrutiny and to being what's important about it is how it looks to other people, mm-hmm. not how it feels to you. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Um, it's, so when I talk to my daughters about masturbation, um, and again, I've had very light conversations about it um, because I'm still trying to get comfortable with it because the one time I asked my mother about masturbation, we were, I was 21 and we were decorating the Christmas tree. (laughs) And I said, how come we never talked about masturbation? And a Christmas ornament dropped to the floor. And for like two minutes, we, all we heard was the roll of the ornament down the wood floor. And then she said, well, it's self-indulgent. Oh, wow. So that was my messaging. And obviously, I don't want to have that messaging with my daughters, but I still find it hard to bring up because they get embarrassed too. So yeah. how, do, how do you even approach it? How do you, do you say to them, you know, have you given yourself pleasure? Like without them going like, oh my God, shut up, get out of my room. Um, well, and they might, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I'll tell you, um, speaking as somebody who had very opposite messaging as a kid, uh, my mother... <laughs> My mother had this deep fear. So I'm Jewish, speaking of Christmas ornaments. Uh-huh. Um, and she got it in her head that um, Gentile women don't like sex. I, She's kind of right. She just got it in her head. <laughs> and she was so worried that I would absorb that message um, that she would constantly tell me how great her sex life was with my dad. Um, and like, really, I did not want to hear that. I mean, she didn't 
go into graphic detail or anything. Right. She just would say, you know, it's really important to enjoy sex. I okay, really enjoy this, sex is, this is really important that you're saying this because I, I say that to my daughters and they see it with my husband. We are, mm-hmm. you know, after 20 years, it's still hot for each other. And there have been times when I have gone on TV shows and stuff where I've written in my books about the fact that my husband and I are still hot for each other. And like, I, I, people would give me a really hard time about it. Like I shouldn't talk about sex. And I remember I was um, about to go out do Good Morning America. And Chris Rock said to me, he was like, let me tell you something, Allie, what you're doing is great. You're going out there and you're saying I'm married and, and I have great sex with my husband. You know, it's kind of time for married couples to get a little you know, good publicity in terms of that. Um, so, so in other words, with my kids, they know that and they see that. And so that is one area I feel pretty healthy about, but it's the, the idea of my daughters being able to experience pleasure, to understand it, um, as they go into dating and, and having relationships and everything, I want them to be, uh, I want it to be mutual. I want it to be satisfying for them. I mean, I don't know that you have to be necessarily explicit about masturbation if that makes you uncomfortable, but saying, you know, it's really important that you understand your own body um, before you interact with another person. The best way to have a good experience is to um, have a sense of, of your own body. And I would say, honestly, I really wrote Girls and Sex, not just for parents. And, and it's not read just for, by parents. Mm-hmm. It's read by girls themselves. And I get, and the TED Talk too. I get so many emails um, from teenage girls and college age girls all around the world who have watched that TED Talk um, or, or listened to an interview. And it's been revelatory for them in a way that every single time surprises me. Cause I keep thinking, Oh, you know, this must be all fixed by now. Right. I mean, everybody understands all this stuff by now. Right. I mean, like every time I can email, I just think, wow, wow. You too grew up with, you know, with zero information. And, and here's the thing, Ellie, is that it's not like they're not getting information. They are bombarded by media, you know, in an unprecedented way. And that media is highly sexualized. And a lot of times, you know, there's a few things that are um, really great, like shows like Big Mouth or Sex Education. Um, But so much of it is so toxic um, and just, you know, gives them messages that are so distorted and wrong that if you're not getting in there um, talking to them in this day and age, you're kind of throwing them to the wolves. I mean, do you think that sort of mainstream media is as destructive as pornography to our teenagers? You know, I really do. And, yeah. and I talk a lot about porn and I think it's important to, um, that is, you know, demonstrably where young people are turning for sex education now, which is disturbing. But Well, Pornhub, I mean, Pornhub right. is the YouTube of pornography. Just look at the, first, the front page and, and think this is how they're learning about sex. And is that the message you want them to get? And how do you need to correct for that? And um, there, what has changed about pornography, and parents need to understand this too, is Pornhub um, dropped the paywall. It used to be that all hardcore porn was behind a paywall. And now it's completely free, completely accessible, completely anonymous, 24-7. Um, and that was the game changer. And this generation of, of kids are guinea pigs around that. So, Peggy, wait, I, I'm asking you this because I don't know. I really don't know. When you go on Pornhub, you don't have to pay to see this stuff. It's free. Oh No, that's why kids can do it. Otherwise, they'd have to have a credit card. 
So everything is free. That was what changed everything. 2007 was the dividing line. Um, So, you know, anything you can think of and a lot of things that you can't and nobody wants to think of um, at, at the touch of a mouse, everything is there. What I hear from girls a lot is the way that that behavior does seep into the bedroom, whether it's, you know, sticking fingers in the mouth or, um, you know, hands around the throat or various things, um, jackhammer intercourse, you know, as, as somehow the way you're supposed to do it. Um, what girls will say they learn from porn is um, self-presentation. Mm-hmm. And um, also it encourages a kind of spectatoring, uh, it's called, in, in sex where girls... Um, it's like you're floating above the experience and watching yourself from the outside. And I remember talking to a girl who was saying, you know, I think about when I'm having, it's, it's fine when I'm kissing. And then there's like a certain point where it flips and I'm thinking, you know, how does she have her arm? Um, what would she do with this? And she's like, I don't even know who this she is that I'm thinking about, but I think mm-hmm. it's some woman from porn, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing girls will say is that they use it to see what guys want. Um, and you know, that's a whole different thing. So as a teaching tool, as a teaching tool, again, sex education. So you have the whole porn thing and obviously we could talk about that for the next hour, but you know, kids also talk about mainstream media and its impact and and mainstream media has been heavily influenced by pornography at this point. Um, Mm -hmm. it gets more and more explicit to grab eyeballs, right? That's a great way to grab eyeballs. Um, whether you're talking about, you know, Netflix or, um, YouTube or, uh, Instagram or, um, music. I remember a boy saying to me that he thought music had a big influence on how guys learn to treat girls because when you're, I, I can cuss on your podcast, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, you're driving around in your car all day with your friends and you're hearing fuck that bitch and leave her four five, ten 10 times um, in a day, you know, it starts to affect your mindset. And especially that, when you're hearing too, like tap it, hit it, fuck it, yeah. throw it, you know, it's right. It's and we lot. just went through a whole, you know, we've been having this whole national discussion, or at least some of us have about the impact of media messaging on our beliefs and thoughts and the way we see the world and our politics and how we vote and how easy it is for things that are untrue, that are fake, that are mm-hmm. distorted um, to become our truths with, rec- with repetition. Even if you start out not believing that, um, media affects our beliefs and our thoughts and our behaviors, even when we think it doesn't. I think, you know, the tsunami of media, we're, we're always up against it as parents and trying to find ways to help our kids have critical thinking, look, you know, good media literacy, um, and really understand things. And when we no, don't say a word about pornography or about misogyny in mainstream media or sex in mainstream media, you're not saying anything. Right. Because you're, what, embarrassed? We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges. So you never have to think about ink. Save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Simply by Frito-Lay. These days, you have a lot going on. But now, thanks to Simply by Frito-Lay, you have one less thing to worry about. So kick back and enjoy your favorite Frito-Lay snacks with ingredients to feel good about, like Simply Blue Corn Tostitos, Sea Salted Ruffles, and even White Cheddar Cheetos Puffs. 
all made with no artificial colors or flavors. Enjoy what you love and look for Simply Brand snacks online or at a store near you. Welcome back with more Go Ask Alley. You know, my other question is, I did a I did a podcast and we were talking about, um, which I'm a sort of big participant in helping kids with mental health issues. And we were talking about pornography. And I said, you know, my children haven't asked me about pornography or anything, but I would I would actually sit down with them and I would explain to them, you know, this is not uh, a natural act. What you're seeing right now is a performance and this, I mean, maybe go through it with them, yeah. I, but maybe that's the wrong thing because then all of a sudden, you know, I saw, I was in, you know, Us Weekly saying Allie Wentworth watches porn with her children. <laughs> but I was, I was trying to actually figure out in time, is, is that helpful? I mean, I don't know that I would sit down. I mean, if you have that relationship with your kids, great. But I think most people aren't able to do that. You know, what I did <laughs> as a parent was write um, a chapter in Boy- Boys and Sex has a lot more about pornography than Girls and Sex did. Um, and there's a whole chapter in there that talks about what is true and what is not true about pornography and the research around pornography and boys' thoughts about pornography and allows them to reflect um, and read it without feeling like they're being shamed or blamed. And I think the first thing is to say, is to, for children, adolescents, whatever, to understand that curiosity about sex is normal, mm-hmm. that masturbation, again, um, mm-hmm. is, is crucial and great for everybody, uh, regardless of gender. So if you can't do that, um, at least you can provide some resources, you know, or at mm-hmm. least maybe there's another person, an aunt or an uncle or a cousin or an older sibling or something that you can you know, ask to have that converse, these conversations with your child, or you can um, make sure that you have resources around the house. There's like, um, uh, well, one great book for parents, I think, is Shafia Zaloom's book. And I know you're not going to remember her name, but you'll remember the title is called Sex, Teens, and Everything in Between. And I think that's a great book to help with sort of a more scripted way or ideas on how to talk to your child about all these issues. Mm -hmm. Um, The other book I always think is really great to have for your adolescent is Heather Karina's book. Um, I always forget the title. It's S-E-X, something like an all-you-need manual to get you through your teens and 20s or something like that. Mm -hmm. She's the the person who does um, the website Scarlet Teen, which is also very good and really helpful for young people to know about. I, I think everybody should read this. There's one essay... Um, called uh, An Immodest Proposal, also by Heather Carina, who who does Scarletine. And it is about um, first intercourse. And I can't, I sort of can't go through the whole thing, but she lays out the scenario that sounds like what most of us would think of would be a positive first time for a girl. And then she breaks down why it's not good enough. Um, and I think that in that conversation, in that essay, it brings up so many questions that would start conversation or start a girl thinking um, about what, you know, what she can have, what she should have, what she should be able to ask for. And so I think there's, there is an aspect, even if you're not willing to or, or don't know how or are too embarrassed or whatever, to have the conversations. At the very least, um, you need to provide your child with um, a counter narrative somehow. So now I'm going to swing the pendulum from pornography to virginity. 
How do we change the optics of virginity? I, I will say to my kids, you know, your virginity is not something that you give to a boy. This is not a gift for him. Um, and and I hammer that in their heads because it's just a thorn in my side when people say, oh, you know, how great she gave her virginity to Timmy. And I, I just, I don't or like that how Timmy that Timmy took it. Or that Timmy took it. So. Yeah. Um, that danged Timmy. I know, Timmy. God. <laughs> addicted to porn, that Timmy. So <laughs> how do we have a conversation with mm. our girls about virginity and take out these kind of old-fashioned <laughs> ways of saying it? Virginity is a social construct. Um, <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I think that's true, though. And why do we even define it the way we define it? Why is virginity defined as penis vagina intercourse why do we think that that is the ultimate thing because you know for the one thing it's it's not going to you know feel that good to most girls um should we, by the way peggy should we tell girls that there are ways to make it to help you know that they're like lube is your best friend kind of thing being actually ready as a you know knowing your body and knowing when your body is aroused and receptive is going to make it easier um because a lot of times that's not the case when they when they're having intercourse for the first time. Um, so not only that it's going to hurt, but that it doesn't necessarily have to um, is helpful. But I think the bigger conversation is we think of that as this line in the sand intercourse between childhood and adulthood, um, and that is ends up being such a disappointing thing for for girls, right? Like it's something that, you know, usually doesn't feel that good for them. Um, it's kind of like something they want to get over with. Right. It's the, the way that we construct it so that it's this race to the goal and that's the goal is so um, un unfair and inappropriate for most young women. So one thing I thought a lot about was um, I thought a lot about that when I interviewed gay girls in particular. Um, and I remember talking to one of the girls and she um, had only had sex with other girls. And I said, so how did you know when you weren't a virgin anymore? And she kind of laughed and she said, you know, I had that question too. And so I Googled it. And at least at the time, Google did not have a very good answer for her. Um, <laughs> they should get on that. And uh so she, she kind of she said, well, so for a while, I thought it was the first time somebody put their hands in my pants, but then I decided that wasn't it. And she thought about it. She finally said, you know what I decided I, it was? I decided I wasn't a virgin anymore the first time I had an orgasm with another person. Oh, that's and interesting. Thought, right? Like, what if that was the definition? I mean, it's not that I want to put, sometimes girls can feel intense pressure mm -hmm. to be orgasmic with partners and that shouldn't be either, but but it shifts the the idea a little bit to... Sex is a pool of experiences mm -hmm. um, that, that is about sensuality and intimacy and pleasure and orgasm and all these other things, not just about somebody sticking their penis into your vagina and then suddenly you're a changed human being. We're still kind of living by this incredibly ancient idea of, you know, a man demanding his wife be a virgin and be right. pure when like, he marries And, and that somehow that is what is going to um, make a woman, you know, like purity and all these. Right. Things. So, so it's really, um, it, it's an offensive concept. In totally. A lot of or girls who think, oh, I'll, I'll have oral, oral sex. sex. Yeah. yeah. 
And then that makes those things not sex. I mean, there's a couple of things there. First of all, I was just going to finish that thought was that I think that we should think in terms of virginities, if we're going to think, you know, for, you know, like things like having different experiences and like all the things being sort of weighted differently than we weight them now. And, and one of the issues is that, that I found with, with oral sex in particular was that it had become, it was they, they, that kids didn't think of it as sex. And so the problem was, and, and the, it's, it's actually the biggest change in American sexual behavior um, is the rise of oral sex and that it has become less intimate than intercourse, whereas until really um, that changed in the 1990s, so sort of before then it was considered more intimate than intercourse. Um, so girls in particular would talk to me about it and they would say, oh, it's no big deal. Like it was like they all read the same Instagram post or something, you know, it's no big deal. Um, but only when it was girls giving oral sex to boys, um, the other way was a big deal. Right. So they were using blowjobs as a way to, um, you know, improve a relationship, to satisfy a guy, to um, gain status. I started saying to girls, what if, you know, what if every time, you were alone with a guy, he told you to get him a glass of water from the kitchen, but he never got you a glass of water. You know, you would never stand for that. Right. And that, that's called were, marriage. <laughs> right. And they said, you know, when you put it that way. Right. Um, it's like, why wouldn't you put it that way? Why would you be more willing to perform a non-reciprocal sex act than get somebody a glass of water from the kitchen? You yeah. know? So when we allow all these other things to be not sex, um, it opens the door not only to that sort of, you know, distorted non-reciprocal thinking, but to risky behavior mm-hmm. and to disrespect. It's interesting. My um, now 18-year-old daughter years ago came home from school and she said to me, um, uh, Mom, can we talk about a blowjob? And I thought, oh, I'm going to have to explain it to her. Um, and I was about to explain it, you know, what it was and the mechanics of it. And she said, I don't get it. And I said, well, what you have to do, you know, I all but took out a banana. And she said, "Um, no, I don't get it. What's in it for her? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, it's something that, you know, a girl or a boy would do to a boy. But then how is it reciprocated? And I thought, I never thought that way as a teenager. Yeah. It was it was fascinating and and encouraging at least for me excellent yeah it was excellent yeah you talk about intimate justice in your work explain what you mean by yeah. that that's a phrase that was coined by sarah mcclelland who mm-hmm. is a psychology professor at university of michigan and it's the idea that um sex has political implications as well as personal implications um just like right who does the dishes in your house right and or 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 who's vacuuming the rug or who's doing the childcare all those things are political as well as personal and just like those things it brings up um issues of uh economic inequality and violence and mental health and physical well-being um so in intimate justice mcclellan says um we ask questions like uh who um is allowed to have a sexual experience who's the primary beneficiary of that experience um how does each partner define good enough? Mm-hmm. Who's allowed to have pleasure? All of those things. And those, I think, I think those can be really tricky questions for adult women to answer, frankly. Um, but I felt like when I was talking to girls in particular that, you know, I just kept coming back to this idea that I didn't want their early sexual experiences to be something that they had to get over. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, Absolutely. Um, in an interview 
uh, with 70 women between 15 and 20, you found that the young women realized that they were expected to please their sexual partners, but did not expect it to be reciprocated. Yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> and, mean, that's a lot. and that's, and that's true. Um, that's true in research that young women are more likely than young men to measure their satisfaction by the yardstick of their partner's pleasure. So they'll say, um, if, you know, if he's satisfied, then I'm satisfied. This is straight women in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a really interesting difference with women who have sex with other women. Uh, men, by contrast, straight men, and gay men probably too, um, are more likely to measure their um, sexual satisfaction by their own orgasm. So, and, and especially in, you know, for young people right now, when they're at, in college in a sort of more hookup culture type of situation, um, that is not a, a culture that values female pleasure and female orgasm. So there, and, and, you know, going back to what we were talking about before, we don't name any of these things. We don't tell our daughters that they um, are capable of orgasm and pleasure. We expect them to find out in some kind of, I don't know, way. Um, So it's not surprising that they don't feel that. And it's not only an issue, frankly, of um, sexual equality. It's also a safety issue because the only, um, program that has been found to reduce rates of assault among college girls. It's this program in Canada, and it has been shown to reduce um, assault rates uh, among girls by encouraging refusal skills and practicing and um, a kind of awareness. And they found that when they pair all of that with sex-positive sex ed, that the rates of assault go down even further. The reason is because assault often starts with a kind of low-level verbal coercion. And when girls are more aware of their own bodies and their own needs and wants and limits, they're more likely to see that more quickly and to potentially be able to um, get out of there. And so rather than saying, oh, well, maybe it wouldn't be so bad or maybe it's just me or, you know, maybe, it, you know, I should, this is what people do. Um, they're more likely to be able to say, um, I don't want that, and and to get out. And, you know, again, it's not young women's fault if they can't do that or don't do that, but we do want them to have every tool at their disposal, if possible, to help keep them safe. And I, I talk about this in Girls and Sex. Um, when they, they would talk to college women and say, you know, can you tell a guy no? Uh, and, and they would say, well, yeah, I, I don't have a problem with that. But then they would put them in a kind of simulated experience with an actor mm-hmm. and even a really low level stuff, like somebody asking, badgering them for their phone number, they would just collapse. They couldn't do it. Um, and at, and the, when it got to a more um, aggressive situation, they had, they had a very, very hard time because girls are so socialized mm-hmm. to be polite. Even girls who are assertive and powerful and educated. I mean, we know it, right? We're adult women. We know that it's true. You know, one thing that um, uh, I read was that saying, telling your daughter, you know, honey, you don't have to stay in a conversation with a guy just to be polite. That's a big thing to say to a girl. Mm-hmm. Just that, right? you know, just letting them know. You don't have to stay in that conversation. You don't have to make that person feel good. You don't have to take care of that man's feelings. You can walk away really practicing the muscle of saying, no, mm-hmm. I don't want to say that if you don't get out of there, that that's on you. And in no way is it. But, um, but if it's possible, gee, I would want my child to be able to 
recognize and get out of a potentially dangerous situation well before it escalates. Or even, I mean, even in a non-dangerous situation, you know, just the idea that, and and I'll speak for myself, I, I think I was programmed young to just facilitate pleasure to the other person. So yeah. if I if I actually had to listen to my body, which at that age I had no idea how to do, I wouldn't even know if I wanted to, you know, make out with this boy or not because I, I was so shut down. So I mean, I think, you know, obviously the worst case scenario is assault, but but even in a an okay scenario, right. feel your body. Does this even interest you? Right. And to me, it was so important. All the consent stuff obviously is crucial, Mm -hmm. but that's where our conversation these days in the modern era um, is stopping. It used to be that we would talk about birth control and pregnancy and disease protection and um, think that we'd done our job. Now we've added consent and we think that we've done our job, but all of that is about risk and danger. Mm -hmm. And we are not doing the other part of the job, which is what happens after yes, you know, how do we how do we help our daughters to be able to advocate for themselves um, in a sexual situation when they do say yes? So that it's not they're not just looking at it from the perspective of it's about the other person's pleasure. And one thing I will say about that, though, I, I, I said earlier that I was uh, um, that girls who have um, sexual encounters with other girls things shift uh, in those situations. Um, Girls continue to focus their attention on their partner. That doesn't change. But the what shifts is that uh, both people are doing it. <laughs> so um, wow. the orgasm gap that you see between heterosexual men and heterosexual women mm-hmm. disappears. And women climax at the exact same rate as heterosexual men. My God. I know. Think I, about I'm that. I'm about to leave my husband for another right? woman. <laughs> I know. Now, a quick word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Madewell. Ready to step up your denim game? The experts at Madewell use premium fabric and the latest denim technology to make super comfy, never want to take them off jeans in fits and styles for everyone. The kind of jeans you'll reach for again and again. Get $20 off your online jeans purchase by using code SPOTIFY20 at madewell.com. Terms apply. Please see madewell.com slash promos for full offer details. Welcome back to Go Ask Alley. Let's get back to the discussion. I love the fact that you, when you went and spoke to so many boys for your bo- book on boys, that they were dying to talk and they were dying yeah. to open up because you know, we classically think boys are just going to go in their room and shut the door and we don't have to deal with them because they're, you know. I, I initially really resisted doing that book. Um, you know, readers and girls and boys and my editors were like, do a boy book, do a boy. And it's like, mm, I don't think so. Boys aren't going to talk to me. I don't want to do that. But they totally did. And I think in some ways it was an advantage to be a woman because they, um, if they're going to open up, they're more likely to open up to a woman. What surprised you the most? Well, that actually surprised me the most, to be honest. It surprised me how willing they were to talk and how much they had to say um, and how and what what good narrators they could be uh, of their own um, lives. And and one of the surprises, too, was the the non-consensual stuff with guys. And um, that came up a number of times, again, before I could really hear it. And I ended up writing a chapter about it around the story of one boy in particular 
um, who had been drunk at a party. He was not really himself religious, but he came from a religious family. So I think that was part of it for him, but not all of it because other boys didn't say that. Um, And he um, was really drunk and this girl uh, kind of led him into a bathroom, I think, and had intercourse with him. And he kind of only has hazy memories of it, but he woke up the next day and thought, wait, what happened? And he texted her and said, did we have sex? And she said, yeah. And he said, I did not want to do that. I did not consent to that. He had never had intercourse and that wasn't what he wanted. And she said, you know, there's no such thing as a guy who doesn't want to have sex. And and he really spiraled in exactly the same way that girls spiral in those situations. Um, And he was, you know, he was not um, stereotypically like, emotive boy or anything right um that's so interesting and and he had a really hard time and and i actually ended up writing that chapter first as a as an article for new york magazine Mm -hmm. and um and i got all these emails from boys saying it happened they had these experiences yeah Yeah. and and they didn't know how to understand like sometimes it was confusing usually it wasn't that troubling to them i mean a lot of times when i would talk to boys and i'd say you know have you had unwanted you know an unwanted experience usually they would say like it was kind of funny or they just kind of brushed it off so it didn't really affect them for the most part in the same way mm-hmm. um, but i think that we have to recognize that it goes both ways it goes yeah, both ways yeah. and that that this idea that boys aren't allowed to say no or aren't able to say no is unfair to them mm-hmm. and robs them of agency and you know, and that's enough. But in addition to that, how can somebody who isn't allowed to say no really hear no from somebody else? Right. Yeah. And also, uh, you know, when I think about sort of boys dealing with consent on this other side, you know, and you you do hear this with girls as well, but particularly if he had an erection, that immediately says to people, well, you were into it. You know, it's like it's like a girl who's raped and yeah. has an orgasm. You know, it's right. it's uh, well, you you had an erection and you had sex with her. So what are you talking about? I mean, I can see that being a very complicated thing just because of you know the optics of it all. Right. You know what I mean? And erections are not consent, and right. orgasm is not consent. Right. You know that that's um, that's just the body. Like that's just a physiological response, mm-hmm. um, and it's you know you can't. You can lubricate, yeah, during an assault. You can have an orgasm during an assault. You can get an erection when you, you know, just something, you can get an erection in the middle of math class. You didn't want to get that erection. You're not turned on. You know, it just like happened. Right. Um, And actually, I mean, not to totally circle back to porn all the time, but (laughs) I think it's actually an important, you know, one important lesson that I learned um, about just the mechanics of how our bodies work is that there is a big gap between what physical response and turned on feelings. Emily Nagoski, who does work in this area, likens it to um, if you're tickled by somebody you don't like, mm-hmm. like you might laugh, right? But it doesn't mean you're enjoying yourself. Right. That's so, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really actually mm-hmm. a great metaphor because everybody understands that, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Everybody's had that happen. That's just the body being the body. Right. You are having a physiological response of laughing, even though you want to punch that person in the face. Exactly. Uh, when talking to adolescent boys and girls, do adolescent boys care if the girl, I'm talking about heterosexual, if the girl has an orgasm or has pleasure? Did you find that? And B, do adolescent girls fake it, again, in an attempt to please her partner? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. You know that answer is yes. I know. Um, I just want to hear it out loud from your mouth. They did. Actually, right? what was funny was that, that a fair number of boys did too. I was like, how does that work? Um, but they did too. Uh, they not faked it? Yeah. Well, they probably can. Teenagers could probably. Yeah, they can. Yeah. Sure, they can. But I it kind of another thing that kind of hadn't occurred to me. But they talked about the boys talked about that to get out of a situation. They, you know, if they just like didn't want to be there. Right. Um, and but the girls. Yeah. So it's context specific for the most part. Um, mm-hmm. What what guys would tend to say, and this is not universal, but, you know, it's it's the it's the tendency both among the boys I talk to and in research in general that they care in a relationship. Mm-hmm. They care about their partner's um, pleasure very much in a relationship in a hookup in a one-off no they would say i know this sounds terrible but i just don't care right so you know if if you're um that's what you know if you're in a in a college or a high school context that that is a hookup culture um that is not what that is there for it is not there for female pleasure and female orgasm uh i think what what and and that was really important to me in the books to really and and it's the one thing where there's a big overlap in both books is is discussion of hookup culture from the girl's side and from the boy's side. Uh, because and, and the boy's side was kind of surprising at how ambivalent they were about it. I, I didn't I didn't really know that. But the girls, um, you know, the lack of reciprocity was pretty much presumed. It's not my job to say right. you should never that's not my you know, and, and relationships can be toxic and abusive and stuff. So, you know, there's issues with everything. But um, you know, in a hookup you're likely to get a warm body and and a, for girls, you know, an adrenaline rush, a war story. That's a big one. I mean, the whole thing about the hookup, the main, I think, aspect of a hookup is that you're going to go back and report to your friends. Right. It's the story. It's tea. the main thing. I got tea. Right. The yeah. tea. Yeah. Yep. And um, if you're a guy, you know, you might get an orgasm. You probably want if you're a girl. But what you're not going to get in a hookup is good sex. Mm-hmm. And what you're not going to get are the tools that you need in order to create either a positive, you know, a, a satisfying sexual experience or emotional intimacy. So, so hookup from my understanding from my daughters is mm-hmm. it can be anything from making out to having sex, which as right. a parent, it's a little bit terrifying when I hear them talking the next morning and they're like, Oh my God, Sally hooked up with Timmy. I'm using Timmy again. That Timmy. And I'm, I'm telling God, you. He's the worst. He's a bad seed, <laughs> that Timmy. <laughs> and I say, to, I'm trying to be cool, but I'll say like, what do you mean hook up? And they'll say like, oh, they hooked up. And I go, what does that mean? Hook up. Right. right. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a totally ambiguous term. And it can mean kissing. It can mean groping. It can mean oral sex. It can mean intercourse. And, and it allows young people to overestimate what their peers are doing. Which mm-hmm. can lead to, you know, engaging in sex that you don't want to engage in, so that you can keep up with the Joneses kind of thing, or pushing harder than you might otherwise push. So what we know in terms of research in, is that in at the college level, thirty to forty percent of hookups involve intercourse. Another ten to fifteen percent involve oral sex, and the rest are kissing and groping. And that twenty-five percent of college students never hook up once in their entire college careers, about 10 to 15% um, hook up more than 10 times. Um, and, you know, in some combination of those activities and the rest, the average number of partners over four years is seven. So it's not exactly the fall of Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, what the, the other piece though is, so there's the hookup, but then there's also the phrase hookup culture. 
And hookup culture is something else. And that, what that, and college students will say, um, this research is always done on college students because they're over 18 and they're all in one place. Mm-hmm. What that 90% of college students say that hookup culture predominates on their campuses. And what that is, is the idea that physical intimacy should precede emotional intimacy rather than be its product. And that hooking up is the pathway to a relationship, um, even though most hookups won't lead to relationships. So that, that's what has really shifted is that, you know, rather than being like, you know, you ask somebody out on a date, you go out to coffee, you move towards seeing if you like them, mm-hmm. and then you start getting physical with them. You first get physical and then you decide if maybe you might like them. But it's hard to do because part of the script of the hookup is that afterwards you're supposed to be um, kind of less friendly with the person. So that makes it really hard to figure out how to establish some level of emotional connection um, when you're sort of not supposed to do that. That's part of the part of the deal. So what's the difference between a one night stand, which was my generation, right. and a hookup? What's the difference? Um, nothing necessarily. Yeah. They didn't invent casual sex. But I think in your era, in my era, um, that was typically the exception was that you would have a meaningless one night stand. It wasn't, you know, it was sort of like, I I remember we used to, my friends and I used to call them transitional men. (laughs) You would be in a relationship for a while and then you get out of that relationship. I know. And then you'd have like the transitional guys who you would just like, you know, sleep with for three months or something, or, you know, usually it wasn't one night, but sometimes, but you know, that, that you knew were were kind of temporary and you were just kind of blowing off steam and having a good time. Um, But it's just, it's a different orientation that young people tend to have now. If you had to, as a, as a parent wandering in the desert of teenage sexual discovery, are there- Which I am. <laughs> which I am as well. Yeah. Um, what would you say, and, and I know this is like a, a hard question, but what are the three things, the most important things that we could say to our daughters? Well, that's tough to say. I mean, I think that, you know, we do have to talk to them about knowing their own bodies. Um, We have to talk to them about having, a friend of mine always says, they need to have a strong yes and they need to have a strong no. Mm -hmm. And and I think that that's really wise. And I think that we need to provide them with the resources that they need um, to reach that understanding, not only our own voices, but um, books or websites or whatever they need that can help them self-educate because it is hard as a parent. Um, You know, if you're really into like, you've got a young child and you want to like get them into the best sex education ever. um, You should check out Unitarian church, our whole lives. That's like having a little bit of Holland in America. They do such a fabulous job with, um, with all kinds of sex and relationship education. They're, they're like the gold standard. Um, But, but for parents, I think it's starting those dialogues that are about sex, but not, you know, again, not just about sex, Mm -hmm. but Americans, when we talk to our kids, we tend to frame all our conversations in terms of risk and danger. And the Dutch frame them in terms of responsibility and joy. Mm -hmm. And for me as a parent, that shift was enormous. Yes, I would have added consent to the um, discussion of uh, birth control and disease protection. Mm -hmm. But the other, you know, the idea of joy, I don't think so. Yeah. And I have really tried to, you know, whether she likes it or not, and a lot of times she doesn't, um, make that shift. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. 
It really is. I feel like I've been sort of parenting from a fear-based position. We all do, yeah. right? We all do because it's terrifying mm-hmm. to be a parent mm-hmm. and you have, you know, this child walking around and you don't want them to be hurt and you don't want them to, you know, you want to wrap them in bubble wrap. I, I will say that for me, a lot of the pandemic has been about that when I've been forced to, because um, I travel a lot for work and I have been home for a longer period than probably since my child was a toddler. Um, and it kind of forces me to think about the conversations we've had and haven't had and how we've had them and what that means. And, um, you know, we're stuck in the house together talking all the time. So that has been some days, you know, really hard, but it's also, um, I think created some real opportunity that I'm grateful for. Absolutely. I mean, if there is any upside to the pandemic, it would be something being able to have conversations we probably wouldn't have time to have or extend them and, Absolutely. Um, Peggy Ornstein, this has been a pleasure. Thanks. Me too. Yes. And um, again, I'm going, I can't speak highly, more highly of what amazing books you have, whether you have a girl or a boy or a princess, um, all your mm-hmm. books are so helpful because it. I do find when I talk to other parents, this is the area we are most uncomfortable about, about yeah. talking about, about understanding, um, uh, mostly as I started this podcast with because of our own upbringing in the subject. So exactly, I, I, I actually don't want to perpetuate some of the same things. I want to change them for my children. Yeah. So um, thank you so much. Uh, my great pleasure, Ali. And I hope to, to speak to you soon. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate those incredible messages Peggy offered. Know your bodies, have a strong yes or no, and provide resources. I hope this insight has been helpful to our listeners out there. I know this conversation has helped me. So that's it, everyone. We are wrapping up for this season, and we will be going on a brief hiatus. But do not fear. I'll be back in 2021 for season two. And when I return, I will be diving into our next topic how to grow a relationship in a pandemic. See ya in 2021. Thank you for listening to Go Ask Alley. Remember to subscribe to Go Ask Alley and follow me on my social media, Twitter at Allie E. Wentworth and Instagram, The Real Allie Wentworth. Go Ask Alley is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.